How many of you kept hearing Michael Porter going to the rap on that song, like we have on the recording? Uh, another time. But uh, I, I don't know if you paid attention to the news this week, the, uh, the unfortunate event for those who are on that Carnival cruise ship, you know, 4,000 people on a cruise deep into the Gulf of Mexico, and the power goes out. And you know, that, may, that may seem romantic to you at first, until you realize there's 4,000 people having to share. They had five working toilets. And so it's actually, it's a cesspool, a big boat of sewage is what it is, supposed to be a cruise. But, but they expected a cruise and they got five days of backed up poopy potty misery is what they had. And you kind of feel bad by the time they were towed back to uh, port, uh, they had buses show up. You know, these are people hadn't been, sh- they hadn't showered for five days. They, you can just imagine. And uh, they get on the bus, you can imagine the smell, but they get on these buses, but then one of the buses broke down. <laughs> So it's almost, you know, we shouldn't laugh at such misfortune, but you can't help but laugh. Uh, but one of the guys that was on the bus that broke down, they were interviewing him on the news, and he had a very mature response, danced beyond his years, I think. He says, sometimes when life gives you lemons, you just have to eat lemons. <laughs> that is wisdom. Uh, and, and, and in some sense, I think it's a little microcosm of all of life. All of life is sort of this, we're trapped on a boat, we can't exit really, and there's all this sense that we expect things to be kind of a cruise, we expect things to be a certain way, we have these expectations for the things that we want our life to be and how we want them to turn out, but then there's something happens where we have a cesspool instead of a cruise. And in fact, really, have you come to realize that basically all of life is that way? All of life is, is kind of a trial for some reason, no matter what we expect, cruise-wise, comfort-wise. Instead, from our childhood all the way to our retirement home, trials are constant. Life is a series of trials. We never really get over them. We just go from one to the next, and we're trapped on the boat, going from one trial to the next. And in a very real sense, the maturity in, the outcome of our life is defined by, it's determined by how we handle life's trials. Certainly a big part of that is our expectation of what life should be and how life should go. And that's why James starts his epistle with a kind of counterintuitive wisdom about life. Starting with a counterintuitive wisdom regarding how we should see and handle life's trials and difficulties. We'll just pick up again, right in verse 1, we're starting a new sermon series. Keith preached an excellent sermon last week, by the way, just on verse 1, a whole sermon on one verse. Very appropriate, very challenging introduction to our sermon series on James. I encourage you, highly recommend that you either buy the CD out there or that you just download it for free on the internet and read that and catch up. We're going to read the verse again just because it's one verse and catch up where we are. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, Keith covered all this last week, but you know, James is the, the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father, which is really interesting to think. I mean, you know, that Jesus is fully human, fully God. He certainly in a mystery way, a mysterious way we can't understand. He has the DNA of Mary in him, and he and James shared Mary that DNA. And so, you know, how DNA kind of creates personalities and stuff. And so, in many ways, I'm sure James' personality in significant ways was a lot like 
Jesus. And certainly as we read through the book of James, we hear the Jesus-y kind of way of saying things. Very tough, very challenging. And I'm sure he grew up with a brother like that. And yet he was convinced at some point after the resurrection, after seeing the resurrected Jesus, his resurrected half-brother, he was convinced that his half-brother was God, that he was the Lord of the universe. And he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Christ isn't, wasn't his last name, like he's the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, but it means Messiah, the Greek translation for Messiah. So now that James is convinced that his half-brother is God, his half-brother is the Lord, sovereign over all things, he's the Messiah, he's now also convinced that that turns every one of the world's assumptions about life upside down. Because it's not just belief in things about somebody, it's the implications about what that means. And it turns all of the world's assumptions about all of life completely upside down. That's why James writes what he writes in the very next verse. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So right here we see the first of the many upside-down realities of what it means that Jesus really is God, that he is the Lord, that he is the true king, the the Messiah. Upside-down realities, because now that James believes the gospel, again, he once didn't, he once was a skeptic and and a scoffer, but after the resurrection he does. The gospel is not this religious writing, this religious thing. He's not writing a book of religious things we're supposed to do. The gospel is not religious teaching about something we do, but it's news about what has been done for us by Jesus, the Messiah. It answers the question, how can I be put right? We all know inherently that we're not right, that we all have We call them flaws. Uh, More psychological realities is that they are dysfunction. Uh, Biblically speaking, we are damaged. We are ruin, a glorious ruin. And that in some sense, the gospel is dealing with that question, how can I be put right with God? How can I be put right with others? How can I be put right with the world? How can I be put right with myself? And the answer the gospel gives is faith in the news of the gospel. Faith, belief. Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the grave. And by faith in him, we begin the process of our own restoration. Our sins are forgiven, and we can be assured of living forever with God in his love, the love that endures forever, a steadfast love, living forever with God in his care for us, and one day being raised from dead, from the dead, just like Christ. And what that really means is that believing the gospel, believing this news about the Lord Jesus Christ and all he's done for us results, it, it brings with it, that belief has a result of a whole new way of life. The grace of the gospel always produces, as James says here in verse 1, the grace of the gospel always produces a servant. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened to James. In other words, even though the gospel is a set of truths to understand and believe, it cannot remain just a set of beliefs if it is truly believed and understood. It changes us. 
Because Jesus was God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is the true king who himself became a servant. And so we see a reversal of values in his kingdom. For example, in Jesus' kingdom, the poor, the sorrowful, the suffering, and the persecuted are said to be higher in status than the rich and the comfortable and the powerful. The first shall be the last, and the last shall be first in Jesus' kingdom. Though Jesus, as God, could have been born rich, God chose to have himself born into poverty. In one of the poorest families, in one of the poorest places on the planet, in probably one of the poorest epics of human history. Though he was the greatest, he was God become human. He triumphed over evil not by taking up power, but by serving and dying sacrificially. He won through losing everything. And this is a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking, which values power, recognition, wealth, comfort, and status. The gospel and it's because of who Jesus is and what he has done. The gospel in its very essence is upside down, or actually we should say right side up, counterintuitive wisdom of the realities of God's universe. We live inside God's universe. The world does not get to create their own world. So if the world's values are out of kilter, offline with the realities of God's universe, well, life has a way of making our false assumptions about life crash against the shore of reality. We live inside God's universe. So, so as the gospel is believed, it creates, it does something, it produces something. It creates a new kind of servant people who live an entirely counterintuitive wisdom, a right-side-up set of values and goals in life. That's what the epistle of James is all about. And that's why it's the most challenging. It's challenging to me, I'll tell you that. Challenging to me just to prepare this sermon. It's going to be challenging for all of us. All throughout the Bible, but particularly, especially throughout the epistle of James. The gospel is regularly presented not only as truth to be received and believed, it is that, but the very power of God to actually transform our life. It does that. To turn our broken, damaged lives by this world's, damaged by this world's upside-down thinking and values into lives restored more and more by God's right-side-up wisdom. So, so it is more accurate to say, and we certainly say this by reading the epistle of James, it is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our mind slowly, but over time we are transformed in our thinking, we are transformed in our values, we are transformed in our goals in life, we're transformed in our heart, in our desires, in our souls, in our lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. That's the process of growth. So the very first counterintuitive wisdom of James is verse 2. I'll read it again. Consider it pure joy. Absolutely counter, counterintuitive wisdom. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy. See, consider means that we must make a mental assessment. We have to think about something differently. We have to see and perceive something differently. We consider, we make a mental assessment about our trials. Because from the world's vantage point, and and, and to be honest, from our vantage point, regardless of what our theology is, what we say we believe, the, the practical reality is, and the day in and day out when things are happening, from our vantage point, most trials seem like pointless, random accidents. I mean, how do you think about it when you get a flat tire? Pointless, random, frustrating accidents that fall on us just because we're at the wrong place at the wrong time. We've got the unlucky cruise. But James says not so, but that all our trials have a purpose. They are never an accident. They are always an assignment by God for our restoration. And so by stressing that the trials were of many kinds, What James is talking about here, he's talking about any of the many kinds of trials from frustration to deep suffering all along the spectrum. The many kinds of trials that Christians undergo in this fallen world. Sickness, illness, loneliness, bereavement, the loss of loved ones, disappointment, or financial stress, financial setbacks, a breakup, whatever. Or they can be just the more unserious kinds of trials as just daily irritations, traffic, a red light, some kind of slow person at the checkout counter, or like I said, a a flat tire or some kind of a car breakdown. James is not concerned about which kind. He's talking about all kinds, from the more irritating to the very, very serious and painful, and you you never get over it. All kinds. Now, of course, we don't rejoice over the trial itself. Somebody gets sick, you don't say, oh, that's, that's great. You don't have this frustrating laugh when you get a, black, a flat tire. <laughs> I knew it. That's weird. That scares people. It will scare your family. So we don't start laughing deliriously when things go wrong. That unsettles people for good reason. Don't do that. We don't rejoice over the trial Itself, and, and nor do we pretend an indifference to real pain. The pain is real. But we do grieve. We weep. We cry. We really do suffer in trials. That's the point. They are meant to bring suffering. But Christians, people who believe the gospel, we suffer, we grieve, we weep, but we do so differently because of our beliefs. James says, we consider it pure joy. It means that believers in Jesus as Lord have a bigger picture. We have a bigger window, like I said two weeks ago, from floor to ceiling, that we see our trials. A much bigger picture in our trials. James is saying that that, that Christians should be like women who rejoice to learn, for the most part, who rejoice to learn that they are pregnant. So I'm told. 
A woman knows she faces nausea. She knows in the midst of things she feels sick. She may be throwing up. She knows that's ahead of her, perhaps, when she first finds out she's pregnant. She knows there are going to be serious physical challenges to being pregnant. She knows eventually it's going to be a very painful childbirth. I remember when my daughter-in-law, our son, was being ready to be born, and he was large in the womb, and I said, how's that going to come out? She didn't appreciate that comment. But a pregnant woman knows something in her suffering. For sure she's suffering. It's painful. But she knows something. She knows they're temporary. And she's able in some way in her mind's eye to see the end, the birth of her child. Which makes all the pain and suffering way worth it. And so it is with Christians and their trials. James says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces, we might even say gives birth to something, perseverance. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces something better than the suffering. There is a restoration going on. God is bringing us into a wholeness, into a maturity, into a fullness. This word here for testing in the Bible indicates the process of refining something, the testing, the refining of gold and silver in the crucible where the heat, the pressure removes the impurities. What it's doing is it's making this gold better, truer. That's the kind of testing here that's going on. It, it's, it's, it's not so much whether a person has faith or not. That's not the testing as much as it is intended to purify, to make realer the faith that already exists. Trials produce perseverance. See, when our bodies are physically damaged, we all know this to be true in the day in and day out of real life. When our bodies are physically damaged, we must go through a process of rehabilitation, right? Right? You tear your ACL, your MCL, you do some, you have to go through a planned process, longer process than we'd like, but it's a process all along. It's a pro- temporary, but it's a process of rehabilitation. The goal is restoration. But the rehabilitation is necessary. And like a leg or a knee or a muscle that heals becomes stronger when it faces planned and purposeful resistance, that's what rehab is. In the right way, so to our souls, learn to truly believe and value the promises of God. Value the gospel over the long haul. It's a long process, longer than we'd like, over the long haul, only when we face difficulty, a planned resistance, a rehab. And in a way, we can't see our souls are being rehabbed. By God through his planned and careful and purposeful resistance. Testing, it says. He's refining us. That's what James is saying here. In fact, true maturity, being rehabbed, does not ever happen without perseverance. Just try going through rehab. Just try going through all of life, anything in life. You will never become anything but worse without perseverance. It's true for all of life, isn't it? 
That's not a thing we have to believe by faith. We know this to be true just in life. No significant accomplishment is ever possible unless and until we learn to persevere through trials, persevere through obstacles, through difficulties. Progress toward any great thing in our lives, progress toward any great thing with our lives inevitably entails obstacles through which we must persevere. We must persevere through them or we get nowhere. So James says we must learn to persevere in all of our many kinds, the whole spectrum of our trials. Traffic light, slow minivan in front of you, slow person at the checkout counter to all the way the more serious ones, illness and from there. We must, or we will never mature. We'll be stuck in immaturity, a kind of spiritual adultalescence. You ever heard that term, adultalescence? It's kind of the new term that people are using now to describe the phenomenon of what's happening in our culture. They have the pediatric, I think, guide has officially raised the age of adultalescence from 18. It used to be 18, now to 26. What? Married it. Had kids at 26. What are you talking about? This adult adolescence is when people are physically an adult, but they have the responsibilities, they have the functionality of an, of an adolescent. And it's a new phenomenon that's going on on a massive level in our culture. I mean, we, we, Keith talked last week in our, in our legacy, our leaving a legacy thing, resourcing par- parents, and, and all the parents that were in here after the service, we talked about an article that was in the Atlantic about a therapist named Lori Gottlieb. I don't know how to pronounce it. You read these things and you do your best. But it's an article, How to Land Your Kids in Therapy. And, and we talked, Keith talked about this article, that, that this therapist and her colleagues have noticed this phenomenon that more and more people were coming into her office in their 20s and 30s with great family backgrounds. Not the typical pattern of just neglect and abuse and somehow you've got to put them back together. Great parents, great family backgrounds, prosperity in so many ways, and yet something is totally dysfunctional about their lives as adults. They're kind of not adults, but they're in adult bodies. They're suffering from this depression and anxiety because of a difficulty of just committing to anything, committing to a job, committing to a career, committing to a relationship. They have struggles with relationships and just a general sense of emptiness and lack of purpose. It's a whole new, not that we haven't had this to some degree in every generation, but this is sort of an epidemic, particularly now those in their 20s and early 30s, so she says. And you can read the article. But she and her colleagues have concluded that one of the reasons is the over-rescuing parents who have raised these kids because they want to minimize the difficulties in their life. They don't understand how difficulties are an essential part of growing up. You know, my, my, my generation, we're the ones who raised the tw- those in their 20s, so I claim full responsibility for adults. My generation, our parents were the World War II generation. They basically just ignored us. As we grew up. And it's true, right? Those are my generation. You remember, you go off in the morning, come back maybe at night for dinner. You'd be back at night for dinner. But, but they're just basically largely ignored. And we were fine. If you got hurt, you had to deal with it. You might sneak in and you know, like solve it yourself in some unorthodox way and have to be fixed later. But that's just part of life. But somehow I think we've overreacted because we don't want that for our kids. Because we do remember there are some problems with that, right? So we've become, according to, you've heard the term helicopter parents. 
just hovering over our kids, making sure that there's nothing goes wrong. We're going to kind of keep them in here. We're not going to let any suffering happen. We're going to rescue every slight little, <laughs> you know, and there's this whole sense where we've just created this buffer from difficulty for our kids. Well, that has consequences now, it turns out. Great parents have ruined their kids, I, 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 you know, in a sense where because we didn't understand the value of hardship and going through pain and difficulty, we rescue. And these therapists and secular psychologists say, that's ruined people because you have to go, there's a value in going through these hardships. The value is maturity. And without these hardships, you just don't mature. You stay adult-adolescent. And so I just want to read excerpts from the article. Just to take a few minutes here. Just stick with me here. Put on your reading with me. And she talks this, and I'm just going to read a few things. She says, Paul Bond is a psychiatrist at UCLA who came to speak at my clinic. Based on what he sees in his practice, Bond believes many parents will do anything to avoid having their kids experience even mild discomfort, anxiety, or disappointment. Anything less than pleasant, as he puts it, with the result that when, as adults, they experience the normal frustrations of life, they think something must be terribly wrong. Consider a toddler who's running in the park and trips on a rock, Bond says. Some parents swoop in immediately, pick up the toddler, and comfort her in that moment of shock before she even starts crying. But, Bond explains, this actually prevents her from feeling secure, not just on the playground, but in life. If you don't let her experience that momentary confusion, give her the space to figure out what just happened. Oh, I tripped. And then briefly let her grapple with the frustration of having fallen and perhaps even try to pick herself up. She has no idea what discomfort feels like. And will have no framework for how to recover when she feels discomfort later in life. Far greater consequences, far deeper level, by the way. These toddlers become the college kids who text their parents with an SOS if the slightest thing goes wrong instead of attempting to figure out how to deal with it themselves. If, on the other hand, the child trips on the rock and the parents let her try to reorient for a second before going over to comfort her, the child learns, huh, that was scary for a second, but now I'm okay, I'm okay now. If something unpleasant happens, I can get through it. Later in the article, she says, Wendy Mogul is a clinical psychologist in Los Angeles who, after the publication of her book, I love this title, The Blessing of a Skinned Knee. Could be the title of James, I think. The Blessing of a Skinned Knee, a decade ago, she became an advisor to schools all over the country. When I talked to her this spring, she said that over the past few years, college deans have reported receiving growing numbers of incoming freshmen. They've dubbed teacups because they're so fragile that they break down anytime things don't go their way. No teacups here, are there? Well-intentioned well parents have been metabolizing their anxiety for them their entire childhoods, Mogul said of these kids, handling it for them so that they don't know how to deal with it when they grow up. This is becoming more and more in the literature. This reality, these, all these secular psychologists, secular therapists are recognizing that trials, pain, difficulty is vital 
to growth. It's vital to health. Mental, emotional. It's vital to have and go through difficulties. And if they're just recognizing the vital importance of learning perseverance through trials, even at an early age, the vital part of growing up, well, they're simply catching up to the counterintuitive wisdom that James wrote 2,000 years ago. James says, verse 4 now, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's growth. That's maturity. In other words, God is not going to be a bad father. He's not just going to leave you in a perpetual state of spiritual adult adolescence. So he's going to have a planned rehab for you and me. Typically, when somebody's going through an intense time of trial, there's always one of a few questions that comes up. <clears throat> questions I hear. Why is this happening to me? Is God punishing me for something? Whose fault is this? Who is there to blame? Is this a result of spiritual warfare, maybe? Satanic opposition in some way? Or is this just some sort of random consequence of living in a fallen world? But, but James says instead we shouldn't ask any of these questions. None of these questions are important. Instead, we should let perseverance finish its work. We should move forward and let perseverance finish, it work, finish its work. We don't ask questions as if something's gone terribly wrong. Nothing's gone wrong. All part of life, you're stuck on the ship, and it's a cesspool sometimes. And while we suffer in whatever way, in whatever degree we suffer, we also learn to consider it pure joy because in a way that we can't see right now, we know, we know that we are being matured, we're being restored, we're being rehabbed through all these difficulties for a much bigger picture with a much better future. But still up to this point in James, I'll be honest, Perseverance may not be that valuable to you. Maturity may not be the, oh yeah, that's all worth it. There's more, and up until this time, he still has not given the full answer as to why we should really consider it pure joy in all our various kinds of trials. But here's why. James says the reason we can consider it joy is because of what he says in verse 12 at the end of this little section. He says, blessed are those who persevere under trial. Because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, if you've been reading your Bible, if certainly if you've been coming to the crossing, if you've been listening to the sermons, have you noticed a pattern yet? <laughs> the Bible keeps saying this over and over. Our lives can function properly only with a future focus. We can only view things in our lives right now, whether it's success or failure, plenty or need, Good times, hard times. We can only process these things properly with a future focus. Otherwise, we're going to be dysfunctional. We will mentally assess all of our trials with a deeper joy, deeper than the circumstance that we're in, when we know that God always has a bigger, better reward for those who learn to persevere through their trials. Here's that word that you see often. Jesus said it all the time. No doubt that's why James is using it. Blessed are those who. 
Does that sound familiar, right? You remember Jesus saying that over and over, like in the sermon. Blessed are those, for example, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they're the ones who will be satisfied. It's that word that means restored to shalom. Be satisfied in the way that your heart is always longed for. It's that state of being, whether you know it or not, it's that memory of something you've never had. It's that memory of home that you've never been. It's that shalom in our heart. It's that blessed state of wholeness, completeness, of well-being. No doubt that's what he's talking about when he says mature and whole, complete. Blessed are those. It's complete restoration to what we're meant to be. Jesus used it all the time. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or a few verses later, Matthew 5.11, blessed are you. This sounds a lot like James, by the way. Blessed are you when people insult you. What? That's counterintuitive wisdom. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things about you. And that's just your marriage. No. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Counterintuitive here. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He's saying the exact same thing that James is saying. Rejoice and be glad because why? You know something. You know what they don't know. Great will be your reward in heaven. And James says, this blessed shalom, blessed, he's calling the crown of life. It's a euphemism you see all the time in the Bible. Whenever the Bible's trying to describe the kingdom of God, it has to resort to euphemisms because it's not something we can possibly understand. So crown of life has all kinds of poetic, symbolic pictures of it. Life is the key. Crown is certainly a part of this picture. It comes to those who persevere under trial, which means that all of our joy in trials has to be future-focused. But notice one more key to this. It's not just the crown of life. It says, James says that this crown of life, everything that that means, by the way, this crown of life is the reward God has promised to those who love him. This is a teaching the Bible says in so many places. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, What no eye has seen, talking about heaven, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. That tells you something right there, that crown of life is incredibly inadequate to even be a beginning of a description of this reward. But there it is. What no mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. And God brings us trials, brings us difficulties to test, to reveal to us what we love most. Our true beliefs and unbeliefs. And to refine our love for him. Because any true restoration of our soul, any true restoration of our lives, any true soul rehab must rehab our loves. It must reprioritize the hierarchy of our loves. If I loved my car more than my kids, you would rightly say that's incredibly dysfunctional. Why is it dysfunctional? Because the hierarchy of my loves is destructive to me and my kids. 
It's dysfunctional in ways that we can't possibly see. When we love anything more than we love God, that is incredibly, damagingly dysfunctional. And God is going to use trials to refine us by refining our greatest loves. That really gets down to what our, 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 our trials are all about. Our distorted life is really the result of our distorted loves. And this is a key truth for all of life. We start to mature when we understand that all of life becomes a trial, really, of what we love most. That really is what's going on in most of our trials. It's a love most crisis. It's a hierarchy of what should be our greatest loves crisis. See, we always live by what we love. The joys of our lives are always determined by the greatest loves of our heart. And a dysfunctional hierarchy of loves is going to be a dysfunctional life. God is rehabbing us for our sake because he is the most love-worthy being there is. So then James says, in a time of trial, don't do what everyone else does. Have a counterintuitive wisdom. Don't try to escape God's rehab. But instead, let God refine and let, let God rehab and let God restore your heart on your love for him to refocus your loves where they need to be in the hierarchy of things for your benefit, for your health, for your shalom, for your blessedness for your crown of life. And when we do, we know we will receive the crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. So as the worship team comes back up, would you pray with me? Lord, we, we struggle with the question, why? Why do you value so much our love for you? Is it because you're egotistical? Is it because you crave attention and affection? Did you create us because you need something from us? Our love? Or is it what the Bible says, that you have forever been a perfect community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect in eternity past, infinite past. You've always been a perfect community of mutual love, and worship. You don't need love. You are love, and you want to give it, and you know you know that we are healthy only when we love what is most love-worthy, worship what is most worship-worthy. And when that's confused, our lives are broken and damaged. You love us. You want us to be fulfilled, to have shalom, and that only comes when we love what is most love worthy first so this is what you're doing this is the rehab this is the maturity that we should consider all of our trials joy because you're in charge and this is what you're doing in our lives it's a rehab we need far more than we have any idea thank you for the crown of life that you want to give us because we love you in Jesus name we pray amen